he's in charge and not them of the things that are going on. Now think about that for a moment, friends. Think about the fact that Jesus calls us to follow him, that he's in charge. In fact, time after time, we're called to listen to Jesus. To be a disciple, by the way, is to be a follower. A rabbi would walk and talk and often ask questions and pose them to his disciples. And what would disciples do? They would follow behind him. In fact, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus reveals who he truly is, the Son of Man, right, and, and Peter and James and John are blown away by him, right, they're, they're wanting to build tents and do other things, but the Father says what? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, notice the next words, listen to him. Why should you listen to him? Because he's in charge. Because he has authority. Now, maybe you're, you're here and you're new to Christianity and you're wondering about following Jesus. Really, friends, the question does come down to who is in charge? Now, let's just be honest for a moment that we often, even as believers, think that we are in charge. But through circumstances and through different situations in our life, what do we find out very quickly? We're not really in charge. Things that we thought were certain and we're confident in actually rock us to the core. As we heard this morning from Evan at our church, right? That the Lord is our refuge, right? And because he's our refuge, we won't be shaken. But if we're trusting in other things to be our refuge, guess what? We will be shaken, right? We will shake. When you think about our economy or pandemic things or all kinds of things that are out of our control, this is a reminder of not only who's in control, but who you need to submit to. So maybe you're not a, a, a wondering, maybe you're, you're, you are a Christian this morning and, and you've been following Jesus for many years in your life. I wonder, is your Jesus too safe? Have in some ways over time you've put him in a, in a box, or if you haven't done that, maybe you've compartmentalized your views of Christianity. That Christianity can have these areas of your life, but these areas are yours. Right? Jesus can have my Sunday mornings, but he can't have my Monday day at work. Jesus can have my view of money, and I'll tithe and give to the church, but Jesus can't control how I think about sexuality. Jesus can have this in my life, but this area I can keep from him because who's really in control? Friends, I think in some ways what Jesus is doing is challenging us to ask the question, who truly has the authority? Who's in control? So first of all, there's a test. But second, notice how Jesus responds. I'm sorry, there's a trap. I knew I was going to mess it up. The trap, notice now that Jesus sets the test. And he does that if you look, and we can read what Mark says. It starts in verse 29. He says, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now let's just stop there for just one moment. Because in some ways Jesus flips the script. Now Jesus doesn't always do this, but someone actually counted up that almost every time Jesus is asked a direct question, 80% of the time, he doesn't respond with an answer, he responds with a what? A question. Isn't that stunning? Right? I mean, over and over, Jesus doesn't, he actually doesn't even invade the question. In some ways, as we're about to learn, uh, he actually answers the question by asking a question, which just shows how incredible our Lord is and how he can ask questions that, that, that kind of expose us in so many ways. 
But I just want to take a quick side note. Because I know, if you grew up in the church, that you probably know 1 Peter 5.13, right? You need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, right? You need to be able to give a defense. You need to be able to, ready to answer the, the questions and the objections that are given to Christianity. But I just want to note that often, especially in the way Jesus often answers questions that are given to him, that we could learn something here. You see, often we take on the very burden of truth to answer questions, but I wonder if we don't need to always do that. I wonder that actually maybe it would be better if instead of first giving an answer, which eventually, we, yes, we do need to do, and we have answers, right? We have a hope that lies within us, and we have reasons for that hope, but sometimes it might be better to, to flip the script. It might be better to ask a question. It might be good to ask a question just as simple as this. Well, what do you mean by that? Or how did you come to that conclusion? I mean, those are just two very simple, basic questions. In fact, there's a wonderful book called Tactics by Greg Kokel uh, that can help you in thinking through how to ask good questions of your friends or family or neighbors, especially if they're putting you on the hot seat. You know, someone came to me and they said, you know, why is this world so messed up? Well, like, what's the problem? I've got some ideas, right? <laughs> but maybe it'd be better if I said, well, why do you think the world's so messed up? And, and how did you come to that conclusion that it was messed up? Like, maybe this is how it's always supposed to be. I think, though intuitively, we know what? It's not how the world is. It's not supposed to be this way. Right? You see, asking questions can help us get to know and actually show love. It's not, to, it's not a gotcha game. It's not to put someone else back on the hot seat. It's actually to help them understand that they too have to have answers. They're working, we might say, with presuppositions. They've already got things in their mind of how things are to work, and we're just going to bring them to the front. That's exactly what Jesus does. In fact, in this test, he not only has his own test for them, but we also see how they take a test how they're processing how to answer this. And so let's just look at those. You see in verse 29, Jesus asked them, notice that he asked them, how many questions? 55? I got 55 questions for you, right? No, he says, I got one question. I've got one, that's it. I mean, that's a brilliant question. It outmaneuvers them. It, it, it sets a, a trap in a way, and we'll talk about that. But it's like being a chess player who can see 52 moves ahead. I don't know if you can really do that, but... Uh, uh, I don't know, I, I don't play chess very often, but sometimes when you play chess and someone like really knows how to play, you're like, you make one move and they're like, checkmate. And you're like, I just moved one piece, right? Like, like I already, I've already completed the game, right? And that's how Jesus is in some ways here. He exposes them. Now, when, what he asks about this one question, what's he asking about? He's not actually asking about his ministry. He asks about John the Baptist's ministry. Now, I say ministry because it says the word baptism here. And baptism is kind of the pinnacle of John's ministry as he's calling both Gentiles and Jews, but in particular Jews, to repent and get prepared for the kingdom of God. What Jesus is talking about is the fullness of John's ministry. And so he's asking, hey, well, what was John's authority for in his ministry? Did, did John the Baptist have the correct credentials? Now commentators will note in this passage that this is brilliant because Jesus in one move, in this one question, has really kind of done three things. Notice what they are. Number one, John's ministry is publicly recognized to have God's approval. In fact, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, that is, they're going to say in just a moment, the whole crowds are following him, and so we're afraid of how they'll respond. So number one, John the Baptist has God's approval. Two, notice this, even though John doesn't have their credentials, 
right? He's not authorized as a, Le- a Levite priest. He's, he doesn't have scribal authority. He does have God's approval, and the people have seen that. And number three, and here's how Jesus just answers the question, what has John said about Jesus? What's John the Baptist said about Jesus? That he's the Messiah. In fact, in John's gospel, he says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you go back and you look, and we don't have time this morning, but if you went back and looked in chapter 1, when Mark records the very opening of the scenes in his gospel, he says that there's a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Who's the voice? John the Baptist. And what's, what's the John the Baptist, the voice, saying in the wilderness? Prepare the way for the Lord, right? If you've seen Handel's Messiah, you knew that, okay? So prepare the way of the Lord. And guess who walked on the scene? Jesus. Who's Jesus? He's the Lord. I mean, it's as clear as can be that John has given his stamp of approval, even, by the way, when he was in prison and doubting and struggling, right? He didn't do it with a lack of faith. Even as he struggled in seeing and understanding Jesus's full ministry, he still sent his disciples to him so that he could have his strength, uh, uh, his faith increased and strengthened in Jesus because he knew that he was the Messiah, though things weren't going the way he thought. And so you see over and over, in fact, in some ways, what's striking here is that though these authorities are questioning Jesus' authority, whose authority are they encountering? They're encountering Jesus' authority. They're experiencing the very authority of Jesus. Do you notice how Jesus handles them? He says twice in this passage, answer me. And he does it in such a way that is not mean-spirited. It's, it's showing who's truly in charge. Answer me. Answer me this, and I'll answer you that. He's showing them who's truly in charge. In fact, all throughout Mark's gospel, if you look, it's all about the authority of Jesus. Let me just take, I'll take a quick uh, a summary view. When Jesus comes teaching, right, he's teaching. Uh, he, he's telling them the things of the gospel What's the Bible say? What's Mark say? That they were astonished. Why were they astonished? Because he was teaching them as one who had, catch the word, authority and not as the scribes. The scribes list all of the different Pharisees or the different uh, uh, rabbis who had said certain things. But when Jesus spoke, he said, look, you say this, but I tell you this. And he doesn't back it up with anybody else's authority. He's his own authority. When Jesus performs a miracle and and he casts out these, these demons... What do they say? Here's a new teaching with authority. This teaching just doesn't come with words. Actually, things happen when he talks. Or take this one. When Jesus heals the man who comes through the roof, right, which is like this incredible scene in in Mark chapter 2, they're they're there, and the Pharisees in their mind are questioning, how does he have this authority to forgive sins? Who gave it? Only God has that. And what's he say? Look, I can raise this person up to walk, and I'll show you that I have what? Authority to forgive sins. You look at Mark chapter 4, what do you see? You see the authority of Jesus over wind and waves. When Jesus says to the wind and waves, be still. And they became, in the Greek it says, they became mega calm. They went completely flat. Friends, if it was just happen chance, and he, and he said it right at the right moment, the waves would still be going. But when he speaks, even the wind and the waves obey him. Think about Jesus when he heals sickness. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over death. In fact, when Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, what does he say as he's being, he's commissioning his disciples? He says this, all authority in heaven and in earth have been given 
to hear you. And so this morning, I just wonder, do you recognize that? Do do you recognize that he's in charge, that he calls the shot, and he gives authority, by the way, through his word? Now, there's probably a lot more to say, but maybe I'll put it this way. Whose church is this? Is this Evan's church? Is this your elder's church? Bayless, is this your church? Uh, in fact, I have a lot of friends that will say often uh, to me, they'll go, I'm going to Jason's church. I want to hear you preach. It's your church. But friends, I know what you mean, but it's not my church. Whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. And whether it's Bayless Baptist or the Journey South County or, Lord willing, Journey Bayless, it's the Lord Jesus' church. He's the one who is in authority. He is Lord. And the wonderful news is he is a good and faithful Lord. He's a good king. And he rules in authority in ways that are for our good. That's the good news. Think about it for a moment. In fact, I was with my, uh, I wasn't with, but I was, I, my son and I were talking, and, and uh, he's nine, he's my youngest son, and uh, we were going through uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, and, and we got to verse 12 and 13, and verse 12 and 13, it's talking about all the commands that God's given, all of them, and, and it's fascinating because as Moses is recounting all these different rules and commands about the temple and other things, it says this, which are for your now, I'm reading with my son. I've been teaching the Bible for 25 years, and I was still blown away by that one line that we probably pass over, or I know I pass over, many times in my Bible reading. All of these things where it shows God's authority through his word is actually what? For our good. Which means when, when God says things about your money, it's for your good. It means when God says things about your relationships and about forgiveness and about not being bitter, it's for your good. When God says things about your sexuality and who you are, male, female, it says about uh, our desires, right? All of those things are what? For our good. Now, now friends, when you know, yes, Jesus isn't safe. He's the king of all glory, right? One day when he comes back, all of us will bow down. There will be people who will run for the hills to escape his judgment. But friends, to a believer, we know he is for our good. He's our king. That's wonderful, wonderful news. Now, when they take the test, that's Jesus kind of testing it. When they take the test, notice what they do. It's in verse 30. It says this in verse 30, uh, sorry, verse 31. And they discuss, that's, that's the religious leaders, they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe, uh, sorry, why then did you not believe him? Verse 32. But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. One question, it's not a hard test. It's basically true or false, isn't it? And I like true or false tests. In fact, you know, when I was in school, true or false was my favorite. It's like 50-50 shot, you know. So, like, it's either T or F, and to make sure my T and my F are, like, you know, they're very clear, you know. Like, just, it's either this one or that one. It's not multiple choice here. You just got, like, one shot here. Now, now they, they recognize the dilemma they're put in. They know that if they say it is John, John's got authority and was given authority by God from heaven. John's given validation to Jesus. They also know at the same time what? That if they say, no, nah, it's from man, then they've upset the crowd. And here's the problem. 
they're not looking at the test as true or false. They're actually looking at the test as safe or unsafe. Now, friends, when you see that, then you see how it exposes a lot of things in our own society. In fact, they're kept from admitting the truth. Why? Because they wanted the approval of other people. In other words, they feared man. They, they, they feared what other people thought of them. And friends, that's not much different than us. I wonder what you fear this morning. Do you fear what other people think about you? Do you live your life in such a way that you seek the admiration and approval of other people? Well, if you do, guess what? They have control. They have authority over you. The Bible says that we do not need to fear man, right? In fact, if you go, in fact, if you struggle with this, and, and by the way, we all struggle with this, okay? You can go to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. In fact, I'd encourage you maybe to memorize it, to write it down. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. That is a trap for you. It controls you. It takes you in. It gets you to do things their way. But if you fear the Lord, you will be safe. You have a security, a confidence that no matter what others think of us, no matter their opinion, no matter what poll they take about us as Christians, no matter what talking heads say on TV about Christianity, no matter what's going on in the state of our church here, locally, or across our nation, if we fear the Lord, we are safe. Now, I've learned as a pastor for many days uh, of, of counseling, many days of, of sitting through uh, uh, young people coming to me in particular, but even, even older people, that I, that I used to, especially as a young pastor, used to answer their objections to Christianity. They, they tell me about, I don't understand how th- this problem of evil, or I don't understand how God's sovereign. Like, how can he be sovereign and we're responsible? Or all these big objections. But what I began to find is often their intellectual questions were actually covering up for their moral dilemma. In fact, what they wanted to do is live a life different, a different way than Jesus demanded. And they often would pose these smoke screens, these questions that were more about intellectual things when really it was about their heart. And I wonder if that's you this morning. And it's okay to admit that. It's actually a freedom in admitting that. That my questions aren't so much intellectual as they are about my own heart and who's truly in control. You see, we've seen the trap and the test. Now let's see the truth. Let's see the truth. Look at verse 33. It's the last thing we'll see. So they, that's, that's the religious leaders, they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So they abstained uh, from answering, and an absolutely kind of fair response, Jesus then refuses to answer their question. It's like that scene in A Few Good Men. Right? <laughs> you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Right? There's this moment in which, like, it's like kind of the showdown, and they fail to answer. They don't even, an- they don't even put T or F. Right? They just say, we don't know. We don't know. As though that's going to get them out of the dilemma. Notice what one commentator said. I thought it said it so much better than I could. Notice what they said. Their confession, that's the religious leaders, their confession of ignorance, however, demonstrates that they have no basis on which to assess Jesus' ministry. 
If they do not know whether John the Baptist was from God, they cannot know whether Jesus is either. Faced with such hostility, Jesus refuses to answer his opponent's question and exposes their ignorance and lack of sincerity. You see, they raised the question of Jesus' authority. Jesus raised the question of their competence. You see, underlying at the root of all that's going on here is not their intellect, it's their stubborn will. You see, you're not kept out of heaven because you uh, can't do something. It's because you won't do something. You'll never be kept from the kingdom of God because you don't have a high IQ. These men were brilliant men. That's why they, they, they were the leaders here, right? They were brilliant men, and yet they're kept from honestly answering the question that Jesus poses to them because they do not want to submit to him or turn over their control of what is going on. You see, they're unwilling to submit, unwilling to say they're wrong, unwilling to repent. You see, in some ways, Jesus isn't trapping them. He's not just testing them to say, gotcha. He's actually giving them an opportunity. He's giving them an opportunity to see the truth about the way that they've been living and controlling the temple. He's giving them an opportunity to come to repentance, to turn from their sin. Romans 2.4 says this, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Look at the very character of Jesus here. Do you know how much courage it takes when all the authorities are against you and they come to you? Jesus doesn't even sweat, right? He answers their question with a question, and he does it not just to show the power of his courage, but to show his compassion. He had both courage and compassion. What other man is like this? What other person in all of history can show such courage in one moment and such compassion in another moment? There's many scenes throughout the the gospel accounts where you see that this is a man like no other man. This is a person, a teacher that's like no other teacher. Why? Because he's not just a teacher. He's the Lord. He's God himself come in the flesh. Like we, we like to say here, you know, in church, incarnate. That's what that means. He's come. God's come to us. And he's giving you and I, even this morning, friends, an opportunity to confess him, an opportunity to turn from the things that we want to control. In fact, when you try to control something, what do you do? You squeeze as tight as you can, right? You, you try to hold on to it. But when you do that, what happens? You either crush what you're holding So if you're trying to control your children, what are you doing? You're crushing your kids. But if you try to control your job, what happens? It squeezes out from your grip. Because why? God's told us to receive all of the good gifts that he's given to us with open hands. Because what? He's got everything in his hands. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come and lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died and was raised on the third day so that you might know forgiveness of sin, eternal life, the very indwelling of a spirit, but most of all, so that you can know this Jesus in this room for all eternity. That's what this is about. You see, I hope your Jesus isn't too safe because he's not safe. But he's free, and he's the king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we've opened our ears to hear your word by the work of your spirit, 
we're praying that as we just prayed at the very beginning of the sermon, we might have eyes to behold our Savior Jesus in all of his glory and goodness and greatness and beauty. To know that we have a Savior who is patient, who shows courage when we are fearful, who shows compassion when our hearts are hard. Lord, we know this in our very being this morning, that we have a good and faithful Savior. And might we submit and listen to him. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And again, God's people said, amen, amen.